Hello, listeners. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. This week on What Matters Now, I'm handing the mic to the Times of Israel's podcast partner, Israel Story. So I'm here with Mishi Harman. And since the October 7th massacres by Hamas of some 1,400 individuals, mostly civilians, Mishi and his team at Israel Story have pivoted from their long form, carefully nurtured episodes to producing almost daily war diaries. We at the Times of Israel asked Mishi to compile a few episodes, and I'm really curious to hear about those that he's picked. So, Mishi, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. And can you, just to begin with, tell me about the thought process behind starting this War Diaries series? Of course. Well, thanks so much for having us, Amanda. And as always, it's an honor to be part of the TOI family and all the amazing work that you are doing to cover this uh, incredibly difficult time. So very quickly after October 7th, we understood that everything had changed. We were in the middle of a series that we've been working on for the entire year on Israel's Declaration of Independence, which till that moment seemed like the most pressing matter on the sort of public agenda and national arena. And it was very clear that we had to do something that relates to the times. As you said, of course, we wanted also to jump in and help and contribute in our own way. And in addition to everyone privately contributing either in Miluim or in many different amazing and inspiring civil society initiatives, we wanted to take advantage of our platform and our reach that really reaches hundreds of thousands of people around the world to be able to share what life is like right now. And it required an adjustment for us because, as you said, we usually work on our stories for weeks and months and sometimes years. And here the sort of immediacy of it was crucial. So we figured that we had to change our whole approach. We weren't going to be releasing stories. We were just going to identify people in all kinds of different fronts who were going through different experiences as a result of the October 7th attacks. And that spans the gamut. So from people who lost loved ones or themselves survived the carnage uh, or people whose family members are currently uh, missing or held hostage in Gaza, all the way to a extensive myriad of civil society initiatives of uh, dairy farmers going down to kibbutzim to take care of cows or of chefs creating, you know, 10,000 meals a day for troops or Uh, rock stars that are going to the front lines and performing for soldiers and for evacuated families and on and on and on, running groups and everything you can imagine. And also just people, regular people, experiencing life. So what is it like to be a mom with four kids and no school and a partner who's away? How do you deal with that? And how do you explain this crazy, crazy reality that we've found ourselves in? So we've been releasing, as you said, daily episodes. And our team, and I would love to mention them because they've been really working tirelessly, 
So our team of Zev Levi and Yochai Meital and uh, Mitch Ginsberg and Yael Ben-Chorin and Adina Kapuch and Jennifer Cutler and Ali Muller have been crisscrossing the entire country, really, from north to south, meeting with people. It's also, I think, emotionally very difficult, but also you know, gives us a lot of strength to see and to hear and to be able to tell these stories and to bring them to a very large audience around the world. And what we discussed, Amanda, was that we would share, as unfortunately this war is getting longer and longer, so we've had quite a few episodes at this point. It's almost like a menu of what life is like here and um, you know, what is it like to be an Israeli who's stuck abroad what is it like to be someone who isn't called up to Miluim, even though they're dying to go to Miluim? What is it like to volunteer to go to Miluim when you're 50 years old? What is the tech community doing? And we are also going to start telling stories of Arabs, which we haven't done yet, primarily because most people that we've reached out to are anxious or nervous or scared to talk to us. So thus far, we've only heard on the show from Israeli Jews, but we've been interviewing Bedouins, and we've been interviewing people in East Jerusalem, and we've been even interviewing people in Gaza, even though, as you can imagine, it's very difficult to do these days. Mishi, I look forward to these future episodes, and I understand that you've brought us three that you'd like to share with us, including the first episode that you did in this War Diaries series, which actually is very emblematic of what people around the world consider the most pressing issue of this war, which is, of course, the hostage situation. So who are we going to hear from here? Right, so... When we began this project, we thought that we would focus entirely on the hostages, and we thought we would just be interviewing families of hostages. And the very first interview that we did was with a truly amazing 24-year-old woman called Sasha Ariev, whose uh, young sister, Karina, was a uh, soldier and was abducted on October 7th. So that's what we'll hear first. Let's hear now. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. So obviously everything here has changed since Saturday when the horrific murderous attacks by Hamas began. The members of our team are safe, uh, thank God. But all around us, friends, family, colleagues, people have died, people are missing, people have been kidnapped. The extent of it all is just shocking and there's still a lot of uncertainty, of course. Like basically everyone else here, we're all involved in a million different initiatives, organizing housing, clothes, food, blood drives, preparing shelters. But in all of this, we're also going together with some of Israel's other leading podcasters to bring you some voices and testimonies that paint a picture or try to paint a picture of these devastating times. The voices you'll hear are raw. These aren't full stories. Most of them aren't even edited. Some of them contain views that aren't ours but we're collecting them and releasing them as fast as we can because we think it's crucial and central to our mission that you be able to hear what we're hearing now. This morning, Sasha Ariev came into our studio. Here she is. So we're here uh, with Sasha. Sasha Ariev. Um, hi, Sasha. Hi. Can hi, you guys. 
tell me a little bit uh, about yourself. Uh, yes. Uh, so my name is Sasha. I'm uh, 24 years old, uh, born and raised in Israel. And uh, now currently I'm a master's student at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I'm uh, studying uh, biomedical research on the emphasis of neurobiology. And um, I have a little sister. Uh, this is me. This is how I want to present myself. And tell me about your sister. Um, so as I said, she's my little sister. She's 19. We have five-year gap. And her name is Karina. And uh, she's, uh, she's all I have. I remember when she was born and till today everything that we've been doing together since. And she's a soldier? Yes, she is a soldier in the IDF, Israel Defense Forces. And what does she do in the army? Uh, she She's the one who sits uh, near the borders and observes observe the borders and is contacting uh, the, combat, the combat soldiers who are on the field, who are in the field. And uh, she's the, their eyes. Actually, we were afraid that she will go to the army, but uh, she said, uh, no. How can I not go? This is like my country. I need to serve. Everyone does this. And uh, when they were recruiting her, they, um, the job that was given to her is to be the eyes of the country. This is the term of the observers on the borders. And she was really proud. It uh, It is a very hard work. The shifts are devastating. The hours. Um, she serves at a very remote base. Uh, it's hard to get there. The, the conditions there are not so good, but she was very proud. She was sad when she was coming back home and had to go back to the army because she, she was far from us and it was hard. Uh, she was uh, she was waiting for her to to end the to end her, to her service, but she she loved every second of it and she had a lot of a lot of friends there are currently murdered or are missing. And when was the last time you spoke to Karina? The last time we spoke was the 7th of October at uh, 6.30 a.m. It was uh, a phone call and uh, the last message of her was on uh, 7.40 on WhatsApp. It was the last time. She, she called to say goodbye and she called to say that she loves us and that uh, if she won't uh, leave, so we, we will continue our lives and do not sink in sorrow. And uh, she asked me to keep my parents together and safe. And on WhatsApp, the last message was the terrorists, uh, they are here. She told us the base uh, was captured by terrorists and uh, there was a raid uh, on the base. And what do you know at the moment about where she is uh, she was uh, in a bomb shelter in the in the base because the the there were missiles fired from Gaza to Israel territory on all the Gaza strip and uh, uh, all the Gaza strip area and she was there with other girls who served with her and uh, our hearts are with those families we, we became one big family all those people who are going through this horror. We saw a video on Telegram and she was uh, 
probably kidnapped by uh, some uh, terror organization. Uh, she was in a jeep of them, and we identified her. So she, she was she was taken from the base. She wasn't on the base anymore when we saw the video. So she's currently missing. She's currently missing. The the IDF soldiers, the uh, officers, they came to our home, and they said that uh, she's officially held by a terror organization. But they they can't confirm this because no humanitarian organization like the Red Cross have contacted Israel or Gaza about this. So they cannot confirm who is who held there, who who is the hostage, and maybe no, maybe she was alive at the time that we saw the video, but then they shot her or something and just threw her to lie in some field down. We don't know, so they cannot confirm this, and we're asking them to keep checking the DNA samples with all the, uh, sadly, unfortunately, corpses that are found in the field. So so we we can get a bigger picture. Where, where is she? We, we cannot confirm anything. Can you tell me something about her from before all this? Yes. Uh, something that's really in my mind is that uh, she had her birthday in August, but uh, her friend from home, from school, uh, she ordered her uh, presents from uh, from abroad, from Shane or something. And they, uh, they only arrived uh, on uh, Friday, the day before. And she asked uh, to come to our house. She knew that my sister was at the army. And she wanted to place the presents on her bed. Uh, so when she, my sister comes home, she was supposed to come home um, uh, yesterday. Uh, so she can uh, see it and she will feel nice and uh, see the presents and be happy. And they're still sitting on her bed and, uh, and waiting for her. Um she told us, uh, do not tell her that I was here. I want this to be a surprise. And we didn't tell her, of course. But uh, now I think maybe maybe I should, uh, shouldn't have listened to her. And maybe maybe I should have said. So she maybe knew something good that is waiting home. Beyond, uh, beyond us, the family, that her friends are thinking about her. And then uh, all this horrible thing happened. Can you describe what uh, life is like? at the moment for your family? We feel that uh, the time has stopped, but I'm trying, you know, I'm always saying to myself that the world, our earth is spinning and the sun comes up and the moon goes up and they're on their shifts. But we're standing now and we feel like we're in the same video and it just plays in loops. It's the same routine. We fall asleep because we at night because we can't uh, hold anymore. Then we we can't sl- even sleep. We sleep a few hours, maybe one or two every day. This is not a good sleep. My parents see see bad dreams all the time. Then we come the morning, you know, maybe the sun is going through the window, the light, but we feel this emptiness inside. It's so hard to, it's so hard to eat and do any basic stuff, but, but we try to stay strong and to to continue to be 
optimistic and don't let someone to break our spirit because you know the the hope it dies last and we're holding on to that is there anything that you want to say to the world or to people listening first i i want to ask everyone to to pray for her in any kind of beliefs that that you have any any kind of methods we we do not judge we we love everyone really and we want you to to be with us and raise awareness raise awareness and talk about it there are hostages there a lot of people were murdered hundreds of families are sitting and they do not know where their beloved ones are they missing where are they what happened to them and make pressure on the governments of the world so they put all the efforts on the to to release the hostages to send humanitarian organizations there and to, to be in action um, to bring them back home amen amen Mishi, thank you for that. Thanks so much. Sasha is really an amazing woman, and Mitch and I uh, interviewed her and were really tremendously strengthened and heartened by her resolve. Now, there's so many stories of heroism that we are hearing as the days pass. They're filtering through to the top, and among them are, of course, the heroism of parents who are so concerned for their children. So tell us what we're going to hear now. Yeah, so the next story that we'll hear is an episode that we did with a man called Sivan Avneri, who is a physical therapist from Kfar Shmaryau, if I remember correctly. And he, on Saturday morning, October 7th, received the nightmare of every parent, which is a message from his 18-year-old son, Tal, uh, who was, unbeknownst to his parents, at the uh, Nova party in Reim. And without thinking twice, Sivan knew exactly what he needed to do. So this is his story. This uh, Sukkot, okay, it was the first Sukkot. I didn't build a Sukkah in here at home. And I built our uh, Sukkah at the junction next to Yuli Edelstein house. The main thing we shouted was uh, 50 years ago, in October 73, we had a disaster. And what we wanted to say is, let's stop the 2023 disaster before it happens. And what is unbelievable is that on Thursday evening uh, we went home from the sukkah and on Shabbat we had the biggest catastrophe we could even imagine. For months, Sivan Avneri, a physical therapist from Kfar Shmaryau, was active in the Mecha'a the demonstrations against the judicial reforms. That's why he built his sukkah outside the house of Yuli Edelstein, 
one of the senior members of the Likud party and the chairman of the Knesset's Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. Like hundreds of thousands of other Israelis, he felt he was fighting for his home, for the nature of his country. He had no idea how true that was about to become. On Saturday morning, October 7th, Sivan received a message which is every parent's worst nightmare. His 18-year-old son Tal was, unbeknownst to him, at the Nova party in Reim, and was now fleeing for his life. Without a second of hesitation, Sivan knew exactly what he needed to do. Our producers Yael Ben-Chorin and Alexandra Muller bring us his story. Adina Karpuch edited this piece. Uh, my name is Sivan. I'm 50 years old. Um, we have five kids. As a soldier, I, I was at the paratroops. And since then, in the last uh, 29, almost 30 years, I was serving the reserve army. Can you walk us through the events of Saturday? We were here at home. Tal, our son, told us that uh, he's uh, going camping with friends. He didn't tell us anything about a party. We woke up at, um, it was a couple of minutes before 8 o'clock. Uh, we got a telephone from Amit, Tal's uh, oldest brother. He was dancing in another party. And Tal called him and told him that there were shootings around the party he was at. Amit didn't understand. He called us. Uh, Tal didn't call us because he didn't tell us at first that he's going to a party. So he called his brother and Amit uh, woke us up. Um, at the first minutes, we thought that Tal is imagining, you know. Oli, my wife, told Tal, Tal, you're imagining. There's nothing is going around. Everything's fine. Um, since there were sirens, Oli told him something like, there might be uh, explosives in Gaza. I asked Tal to send us his location. And when we saw... Uh, where he was, we were sure that he heard something from the Gaza Strip or from the border, and we couldn't believe that someone was uh, shooting at him. I called the police. The policeman sent me like a link to the police site to upload Tal's location, and he said, uh, we'll take care of it. It took us another couple of minutes texting Tal, to understand that something bad is going on. We had no idea how bad was it. No one had. Since I understood that no one can help him, I knew that I have no other option. I just, I just knew I have to. Ten minutes later, I told Oli, okay, so I'm jumping into the car, driving south, getting closer to Tal. I took a helmet, some water, a backpack, and I took my gun with my shoes in my hand and ran to the car. I thought there was like a terror attack or something on this camping site he was supposed to be at. 
I was driving like crazy. I'm still waiting for all the tickets to get from the highway. And then he called me, told me uh, the Hamas found them and started shooting in them again. Whomever got out of this place, uh, they ran all over. From this point, uh, Tal was all alone. He asked me, should I keep running? Should I hide somewhere? Should I? I didn't really know what to tell him. I felt like under such a pressure, I knew that I have another hour, more than hour until I will get to him. It was like, I was so stressed. The only thing was in my head. I should get to him before they will. I told Tal, Tal, listen, it's going to take me some time. You must find a place and hide. I told him, find a bush or find something. Scroll under it and don't get out until you hear my voice. Uh, when I got to Netivot, I met some uh, policemen. It was such a surrealistic picture to see like six policemen standing with their guns with a pistol in their hands looking west to the Gaza Strip and like waiting for the Hamas to come. I went to an officer over there, I told him my son is inside, I must get there. He told me, listen, you're not going anywhere. There's a war out there. Um, you can join us, stay here. He asked me to, to park my car at the parking area and join them or something like that. I jumped into my car and uh, started driving west to the area Tal was. Uh, since I am or was a warrior, help me. Okay, it was not the first time I was being shooted at. It was not the first time I was running when there are bombs falling around. As I got closer, I heard shooting. Kassam was falling all around. Kibbutz Be'eri was burning. Like the sky was full of black smoke. And I understood that something big is going around, but I was so focused about Tal, everything around, I moved it to the side. I didn't think about anything beside getting to the place he was. I saw a guy on the side of the road, uh, injured. I told him, wait here, I'll be back to take you. And I drove like another two or three hundred meters, stopped the car. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know if I can horn with a car or shout, or I didn't know where the Hamas is. Since I sent Tal my location as well, like live location, so he saw that I arrived. First he saw my car, but he was not sure it, it's mine since he saw the, the Hamas with the pickups and the jeeps. Only after I got out of my car and started running, he went out of the bushes. Um, I won't forget uh, this moment. 
the till the last day I will leave. He was so cute. He went out, you know, with a hat on his head and a backpack, just like he went to a trip in, in school when he was eight years old. Um, I hugged him. I hugged him for like two seconds and then throw him into my car and say, let's go. Tal says, it was the, the longest and the longest hug he ever had. Um, but we understood we have to get out of there. So we jumped into the car and uh, ran to the injured guy to pick him up and take him with us. After two or three hundred meters, uh, we saw hundreds, hundreds of people walking in the fields, injured people dragging each other. It was an awful picture. It was, I couldn't believe. Like the fields were full of hundreds of people, you know, dressed up from a trans party. It's the Negev, it was hot. They were out of water. When we got to a Patish, um, Patish is a, is a religious uh, village. There was no one out on the streets. We met one guy. I told him we need help. Uh, we asked him to open Beta Am and to open the mini market to bring some water to take back in with us. We knew that there are like hundreds of people on the way. Since it was Shabbat, people were getting out of the synagogue. We asked for some help. We asked for uh, people who has uh, pickups to bring their, uh, their cars. And when we got back to the area, we saw a lot of people coming, running and walking out of there. The guys from Patish were like putting on their trucks 20, maybe 30 injured people on each one of them and an hour later Beit Am was like full of people the people of Patish went out of their houses brought food and and uh, water and two medics who lived there they opened like treating a corner it was only citizens taking care of everything. It was unbelievable the way they were full of sirens around. You know, like every five minutes, everybody's laying down and a couple of minutes afterwards, getting up and keep on working. Um, we got home at the afternoon. Everyone was here, all the family. And um, since then, all of us thinking um, how lucky Tal was, and we were, all of us, and how bad um, it could have been for us, and how bad it is for so many other people and families. The kids knows like 
dozens of, of uh, people who got killed. At the first week, we were sitting here, all of us, running from funeral to funeral. I think it's very important for Tal to know that uh, Daddy came to save him. Um, Oli, my wife, she says that the only thing that she could think or say on this morning of Shabbat was telling Tal that Tal Abba is on the way. Tal is 18, he's joining the army in like six weeks. He saw horrible things. And we are asking, is it, is it right? Is it good for him? So we went uh, consulting with a psychologist about the way Tal should handle, we should handle with him. And Tal says that he wants to go to the army now. He thinks that it will be good for him to get a sense of safety, to get self-confidence. Have you gotten any help since that day? Um, I went to meet a psychologist from work. I work in a hospital. Um, after two hours, she told me that I'm okay, that I went through a trauma, and uh, the way out of it is not easy. I find myself crying 50 times a day. I think to today maybe it was 45, so I'm getting better. Mishi, I had goosebumps before hearing the story, and afterwards I'm shattered, as everyone should be. Yes, Ivan is... Uh Really incredible. He was tremendously lucky, of course, to be able to get uh, to Tal and to extract him. And thank God both Sivan and Tal are, are fine, and at least physically. And that's a story that producers Ali Muller and Yael Ben-Hurin recorded and Adina Karpuch edited. I have heard so many people talk about those we have lost and those hostages who lived in the Gaza envelope as the biggest peaceniks ever, those who believed in coexistence, those who would shuttle Gazans to hospitals in Israel. And you're bringing us a story of somebody in the same type of community. Tell us more who she is. Yes. So the last story that we'll share from within our wartime diaries is that of Mo Meisel, who is from Ifrat, which is a uh, settlement south of Jerusalem, West Bank a very large town. And the reason that I wanted to bring Mo's story to this episode is that one of the things that I think many people are experiencing is that all kinds of fundamental truths about who we are and what our identity is, our political identity, our national identity, our religious identity, are being questioned. And that's definitely true of people who were active in, let's say, the peace camp or in uh, coexistence and Jewish-Arab causes. And some people have 
decided, of course, to double down on those activities. And some people have are really struggling trying to figure out how to square what happened with everything that they thought for many years was reality. And the reason that I wanted to bring Mo is because she's at the center of that and she's able to express really complex and nuanced ideas about this which is I think something which is unique these days in which there isn't that much space for complexity and nuance and things do seem black and white to many people and people have less room to express ideas that perhaps show empathy to the other side because they feel hurt or they feel afraid and I think Moore is able to capture that kind of crisis of identity in a way that will resonate with a lot of people and, and, and has at least caused me to think a lot, too. So here's her story. You know, this war has forced many people who thought their identity and political sensibilities were set in stone to reevaluate things. And that's especially hard because there isn't that much space for complexity and nuance in these raw moments of shock and pain. Today, however, we'll hear from someone whose opinions are complicated, aren't the norm. And that might be challenging for some, or reassuring for others. In any event, here's our producer Adina Kalpuch with more Meisel. So can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Mor Maisel. I'm 37 years old. I um, was born in Tel Aviv but grew up in Canada and currently live in Efrat in the West Bank. I grew up in a home that um, is Islamophobic, homophobic, uh, very afraid of the unknown, very afraid of the other. And that kind of mindset in a very homogenous bubble of everybody thinking the same thing turns into hatred. Uh, when I moved to Israel, I was 18 years old. I had finished high school. And one of the things my mother told me is, be careful of the Arabs, they have blue eyes. Which means they'll, they'll buy you with flowers and with nice words and with, you know. And to me, it wasn't even relevant because I wasn't even like thinking about Arabs in that way. We don't... I only thought about them anytime there was a war. That narrative, um, it lasted and it made sense until it didn't make sense anymore. Through talking to residents of East Jerusalem, finding out everything there is to know that I didn't get a chance or that I wasn't told, I went through like a paradigm shift. People think I went from one extreme to another extreme. And maybe in a way I did. Today it's harder for me to relate to the Israeli flag. As someone who used to be right-wing and a right-wing activist and go out and paint caravans on hilltops in settlements. Now I'm a volunteer in a group called uh, Yerushalmit Meduberet. Palestinian women and Jewish women get together to learn each other's languages. I am currently director of the political group, the elephant in the room, it's called. I am... Um, kind of came out of the closet politically. So so you mentioned these two different sides of you and, and kind of your shift from one to the other. Tell me how that's been playing out right now. People can understand how I can come to understand the other side if we're talking right now about actual current events. They say that I'm betraying my side. 
And my Facebook turned into a, a war zone of people that I didn't expect, my own family, my own extended family. I got feedback like, you're the black sheep in the family and you need to go to Gaza. Gaza. And I think they just created a bandwagon and they all jumped on it. So cousins and aunts, aunts who, who loved me and fed me tadig every Shabbat when I'd come over. They're Persian, they're from Iran. Um, all these people turned on me. And uh, my aunt even sent me in private. She, you know that there was one of the peace activist women. She was kidnapped by Hamas. She sent me a picture of that and she said, soon by you. And that's extreme. That's extreme. Tell me a little bit about what last Saturday was like for you. Last Saturday was the weirdest day that could ever exist because we had planned a trip from Friday. Me and some friends from Ilazaria, uh, which, which is a Palestinian village. It is a Palestinian village, correct. And we planned a trip up north right next to the Jordanian border. There's like a hot springs there. We went up there and then we slept over in the Kinneret uh, next to Tiberias. And uh, you wake up in the morning to videos of Hamas infiltrating Israel, which looks like it came out of a movie. You just don't believe that your like safety could be so compromised here in Israel. And here I am enjoying my day with like Palestinian friends. Um, let's just say I felt like a traitor. I don't think it was a, a correct feeling, but I think it's hard not to feel that way. Um, I don't think I made sense of anything. I saw quite a few videos. I saw the massacre in Berry or the people shot by the bus stops. Just people in their flowery dresses, like one woman was wearing like a green dress with yellow flowers. Like she didn't deserve to die. Nobody did. But um, I saw the pictures and I was like, guys, put everything away. Like we're not dealing with this right now. We're in Tveria, we're by the Kinneret. We're just gonna enjoy our day. And one of the people with us is a Bedouin who uh, is also a soldier in the army. Which, which is amazing, the group of friends that we have, which is really diverse. Seeing, like, Palestinians from the West Bank talking and being friends with, like, a Bedouin who's a soldier in the IDF. It's, it's huge. To me, this is huge. Um, so the fact that we're all friends is quite miraculous. And he kept getting notices, notifications about sirens, and his phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. I was like, guys, just put it all away. We'll deal with whatever mess this is when we get home and that's what we did and we just spent the whole day in the sun and the water and it was like having the best time and that I mean you could see it you know the beach and the blue skies and there was not a siren in sight or in sound and we felt we just felt like it, it wasn't touching us a blessing today to think back on that moment of sanity that we had when we came back, we came back through Jericho. Everything changes. You go from this sunny day to this darkness. Jericho is completely closed. We stopped at Waja, which is also like a Palestinian city. 
and we sat down to eat and every car that passed by, I just expected it to be like someone with a Kalachnikov, whether it's Jews or Arabs. At this point, people were taking revenge on each other, like the fear in your heart, it's gripping. But I've learned to take fear and just to alchemize it into like action that opposes fear, which means just sitting, just sitting and doing, accepting your faith, whatever it may be. And then we went home. Uh, what does it mean to go home? We went to Azariah. They were afraid to cross into Jerusalem. Your friends? My friends to drop me off. And they said, you know, going to Maladumim, wait for a bus. If there's no buses, then we'll figure out a way to get you home. The streets were empty. There were soldiers coming out trying to catch like hitchhikes to the bases because they all called in for reservist duty. And I couldn't get home. I called my place of work. I work in a hotel in Jerusalem. And I asked them if there's like even a dirty room I can sleep in just so I can get somewhere. And they said, come, come. And I've been living in the hotel ever since. <laughs> it's been like a week and a half. I don't want to go back to Efrat. <sighs> yeah. Well, and as this war has progressed, have you been able to um, keep those bonds with uh, the Palestinian friends you, you hung out with? On October 7th, has, has anything changed? Those bonds have only deepened. It's all the Palestinians that came and asked me, how am I doing? How's my family? Many of my friends who are Jewish, who were in these coexistence groups with me, have blocked me, have said things like, one of the girls in the WhatsApp group that we, we run, she came back into the group just to say, I hope your wives and children are murdered and raped the way you did to us and then left the group. So a lot of the people who were like trying to become more moderate in their way of thinking just went back to their natural safe place of like us or them. And I can understand that. It's not okay what she said, but I can understand everybody needs their like blankie, their their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. And sometimes I wish I had that. Sometimes I wish I can go back to that life where, oh yeah, if we carpet bomb Gaza, everything will be fine again. But I don't have that luxury or that privilege. I know too many people who have family in Gaza. There's not a one-size-fits-all message right now. I think the I don't even think we want to hear it right now, and that's okay. We just need to settle in our pain for now and support each other, even if it means each side supporting their own until we feel safe again. So today I have to just make space for, for everybody. And one heart can't do that. But if there's something that I think that I was given as a gift by God naturally, it's that place where I can like be the calm voice for other people when everything else is going to shit. And that's what it feels like right now. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it's not painful to lose my family, but, um, but I know that I can do that for other people. Thank you so much, Mo. I really appreciate it. Mo's story was uh, recorded and edited by our producer Adina Kapoor. 
Mishi, thank you so much for bringing these three postcards, these three vignettes of slices of life of what is happening here in Israel right now. Listeners, please check out the Times of Israel website for the War Diaries or subscribe, of course, to Israel Story on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Mishi, I look forward to hearing more from you, and I know we will, and it'll be as equally complex and nuanced. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you very much for highlighting this series and for all the work that you've been doing. And most of all, may we all be safe and no calmer days. Amen. Listeners, if you have comments or questions about this episode or for Mishi himself, you can please send us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, shalom. <laughs>